Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 138 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. When Chris walked in today, I was um, watching the award for the Women's Prize in Fiction. Yeah, that was really cool. I heard it as I was walking up through the hallway, and I thought, that's a really odd-sounding business call that she's still on. <laughs> I didn't even know the awards were happening today. So that was really fun to catch that. Yeah, I just like about 15 minutes before you arrived, I thought, I wonder what time it is in London, because I knew it was tonight. And then it's tonight in London. So we were able to watch it. It was really fun. And Suzanne Clark Piranesi won. Yeah, congratulations. She gave a really wonderful acceptance speech. Yeah, it was sweet. Her little hands were shaking. I felt bad for <laughs> her, but also happy for her. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> So you had a follow-up about Dickens, right? Yeah. You know, we've talked about what does Dickensian mean when people say that. So I looked a little bit to see what was out there. And one of the articles I stumbled upon is from the Paris Review, 2014. It's by Matthew Sherrill, and it's called Ditching Dickensian. The subtitle is Giving Lie to a Critical Crutch. (laughs) Because so many people say this. The article starts off with, Donna Tartt's novel, where so many people were calling it Dickensian. And and so they were even questioning what this even means. In a nutshell, it means what the writer of the statement thinks it means, because it means a whole bunch of different things for different people. Um, But a lot of the times it can signify sentimentality, social conditions, a cast of comically hyperbolic characters, a reliance on plot contrivances, or even simply the length of the book, a doorstop Mm. of a novel. But it can mean a lot of other things. So in Cheryl's article here, he also went back to the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED, to find out when it was first used, this term Dickensian. And that was in 1856 in a Saturday Review article referring to um, a Dickensian description of an execution. Oh, interesting. Is the sentence used as uh, the example. But even before it became solidified into Dickensian, people were calling things Dickensiesque, Dickensy, Dickensish, and Dickney <laughs> as, you know, as an adjective describing right. something. So I thought that was kind of funny and interesting. We'll put a link in the show notes to this article if you'd like to read it. It was pretty entertaining. Yeah, thank you for that. That was just me asking a question and then you doing some research. And I appreciate it because you see it and hear that said all the time about books. And I just never really knew what it meant. Yeah, yeah. And people also do, uh, he mentions Kafka, something is Kafka-esque. Mm-hmm. And that's also become meaningless for a lot of people. Yeah. Because it's so overused and used in so many different ways. Yeah. Did you have something you wanted to say about men also? Oh, yeah. Them? So Dickens is all around us. I had been looking at Pachinko again by Min Jin Lee, and I was surprised uh, that the epigraph for the first chapter is a Dickens quote. You know, I shouldn't have been because she is a big reader of Victorian literature. She loves those big Victorian novels. This was a quote from his novel, Martin Chuzzlewit, and this is the quote. Home is a name, a word. It is a strong one. Stronger than magician ever spoke or spirit answered to in strongest conjuration. Mm. As people who've read Pachinko know, the importance of home. Yeah. She's so well read. 
Absolutely. <laughs> yes, she is indeed. And it's been fun for those of you. I know we talk about men a lot on this podcast, but she was, I think, our first post on Instagram was of us going to New York and we were both reading Pachinko, mm-hmm. like just after it had come out because we were going to be seeing her at the Savoy Bookshop in Westerly, Rhode Island in a few weeks from then. So we kind of feel like men's always been with us here on the podcast. Yes, from the very beginning. And we're sneaking up on five years. So that's saying a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you currently reading? Well, I'm currently reading our read-along book, the Doctor's Blackwell. Yes. I'm listening to it on audio. I have started flipping around in the paper copy of it as well. I'm interested in footnotes and things like that in the pictures. One of the pictures I pointed out here, I have a sticky note on, was from the National Police Gazette of Madame Rustel from 1847. She was called, you know, the female abortionist for mm-hmm. people. But this little picture, a drawing, is really intense. It's a picture of an unhappy woman with a bat-like creature, kind of where her pelvis would be, although that kind of fades out. And it looks like this creature is eating a baby. So it's pretty hardcore imagery. It is. And there's a whole section of the book where Elizabeth is doing work in a maternity ward delivering babies and there's the question of how do women not have babies and right yeah age-old story right right and so one of the problems is when elizabeth first starts her practice in new york this woman who's called the abortionist is what people understand a woman doctor to be you know if you're not a midwife and you're dealing with women in pregnancy This is what they think a woman doctor does. So Elizabeth has to combat that public perception of what she's actually doing. Right. And it's also the whole thing about if you're talking about taking care of women, the only thing you talk about in their health is how they have babies and their baby making parts. Right. (laughs) And, And women, as we know, have much more complex problems than that. And we're human beings just like men and have medical issues on all of our body parts. Yeah. Well, and what's messed up too is the fact that male physicians back then didn't visually look at women's bodies, or at least not those private parts. Right. And some of them didn't even touch. Yeah. How can you help somebody medically if you're not seeing what's going on or investigating physically what's going on? Right. And we don't mean they didn't just touch the women's private parts. They wouldn't touch a woman's body at all. Yeah. It made it kind of hard to doctor them. Yes. So this is really, I mean, it was a radical concept for women to become doctors and then for women to get thorough medical care. Right. And sometimes it still is, but that's a whole other issue. So this book, The Doctors Blackwell, is by Janice P. Namura. We are going to have a Zoom conversation about this book. It's our current read-along on September 19th at 7 o'clock Eastern Time. I think we have like one or two spots left. If you're interested, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. And then we're going to talk to Janice about the book. I cannot wait. I have so many questions. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for joining in if you'd like. Oh, we also have a Goodreads thread about this book and hop in there and talk about it there as well. And if you're listening to this episode in the distant future, that thread stays up there to infinity and back. <laughs> right. yeah. You know, thanks for reminding me about that because I have not been a very good Goodreads participant lately. I need to get back to that. I kind of got lost in the first couple weeks of school. Yeah, it's okay. 
It's there whenever you want to be. (laughs) We want to remind people that we have an affiliate with bookshop.org. And on our shop there, we have different lists of books. We have our read-along books. We have people who have been guests of the podcast, their books. And then we have from 2020, our conversation with Russell of Ink and Paper Blog. We did an episode with him talking about each of our 10 favorite reads of 2020. And then we also have a list of our listeners' favorite reads of 2020. For those of you who've been listening for a while, you know that last year we reached out and we asked everyone to list their favorites. And Emily compiled a big spreadsheet of that. So that was really cool to see what everyone was jamming on last year. Oh my gosh, it's like an amazing reading list. You could go to this and even if you don't order books through it, it's a great reference. And I will also still send people the spreadsheet if you'd like it just in that format. But if you order books through bookshop.org, it helps both the book cougars and independent bookstores. Yes. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, we do. And then we also have an affiliation with Libro.fm, which was a really fantastic audiobook platform and they also give a portion of their sales to independent bookstores as well as to the book cougars whenever you make a purchase through them right and if you order using the book cougars promo you get two books for the price of one yep and now if you're the kind of person who wants to order directly from a bookstore or if you're in the connecticut massachusetts rhode island area we are also affiliated with bank square books and mystic and Savoy Bookstore and Cafe in Westerly, Rhode Island. So you can order directly through them. Let them know we sent you. We do have a link on our website. That's the affiliate link. Or when you call, you can let them know. Yeah, we really appreciate your help. We do. We absolutely do. We have a great sound editor, Pat, uh, Pat Keo Sound Design, who's doing our sound editing now. And uh, every little bit helps. Well, Emily, what have you just read? I finished a memoir called Motherland, a memoir of love, loathing, and longing by Alyssa Altman. This is a book that's kind of been staring at me from my bookshelf. Someone handed it to me in, oh, a couple of years ago. I have the ARC. I didn't forget about it, but I was a little leery to read it because it's stepping into an area that's very emotional for me. But I heard... Alyssa on a podcast recently, and it was a podcast that got a lot of attention, which reminded me, this is an issue for a lot of people. And it gave me the fortitude to dig into the memoir. Alyssa is an only child and her mother has narcissistic personality disorder, which is really difficult to be parented by. And it's something that affects who you are really for the rest of your life. I don't want to get too personal here, but I have my own experience with that and have done a lot of work. And I wasn't really sure if I wanted to step back into reading something about this because I've done a lot of reading about it. But I love Alyssa as a person. She's very involved in the world of food. She's done a lot of food writing. I love following her on social media. So I thought I'd pick it up and I really enjoyed it, even though it's taken me a little bit to recover from reading it. It was really worth it. I just want to read a little segment because one of the places that I feel like you can have softness for people around having narcissistic personality disorder is part of the reason that that is their disorder is because they didn't get what they needed when they were a child. 
So it forms who they are. And then they have children and they parent in a certain way. So this is Alyssa speaking about her mother. While she speaks, I gaze up at the studio shot of her hanging on the wall above her. She is in her 20s, lithe, willowy, swan-necked, with warm, empathic eyes that know. She had been told that she was ugly almost every day of her young life. She stored the words in her heart. Pain became a universe that, as Claudia Rankin once wrote, was buried in her that turned her flesh into its own cupboard. Wow. Yeah. So Alyssa really is writing about her experience of having to individuate from her mother and realizing and really frankly being told by doctors if she doesn't she's going to die because of the stress that it's causing her it's a very interesting book because her mother was famous for a minute as a singer and then married and got pregnant very quickly with Alyssa and kind of never forgave Alyssa and would tell her all the time that she ruined her life but yet they were so woven together And she's an only child, so she has to make a choice. You know, do I support my mother in her old age or do I walk away? People make different choices. She's chosen to stay, but then she also married. She married a wonderful woman named Susan Turner, who is a book designer and designed the cover of this book. That's great. And they moved to Connecticut. Her mother lives in New York City. Alyssa had lived there with her for years and years. And so she's been able to forge her own life which is really lovely to read about, but at the same time was very honest and open in sharing of the struggles with her mother and her love for her mother. Mm -hmm. It's a complex relationship. Yeah. Wow. What a brave memoir to write and share with the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm grateful for it. Again, it's called Motherland, a memoir of love, loathing and longing by Alyssa Altman. Oh, well, I finished the new Louise Penny novel, The Madness of Crowds. It was great to be back in Three Pines, I have to say. I think I mentioned last episode that I downloaded the e-version of it because I wanted it first thing in the morning. And so people have been, of course, asking me, well, what did you think? And I've been hearing from friends who were telling me how much they loved it or that it dragged a little bit for them. I have to say I'm in that second category. I had a little hesitancy getting into it, as I mentioned again last episode, because there's still pandemic talk. And then also it's dealing with the personality who is whipping people into anger and controversy and just causing people to butt heads over her theories and her supposed statistics and things like that. So it's a very tough couple chapters in the beginning, but I really got sucked into it. I love the new characters that were introduced. And of course, it's always great to reconnect with those old friends who have been in the series from book one. I can't really say a lot about it because it's one of those books that's very intricate. To say something specific about one thing could ruin somebody's reading experience. So I don't want to do that. But I did want to read a quote. So Jean-Guy Bouvard, who is Gamache's second-in-command and also now his son-in-law, has children. So the person who's mentioned here, Annie, is his wife, who is Gamache's daughter. So this is the quote I wanted to share with everyone. Jean-Guy Bouvard hadn't much seen the use of libraries, though he'd never have said that to Annie or her parents, who saw Les Bibliotheques as sacred places. 
He hadn't grown up going to one, and now, with the internet and easy access to information, he couldn't imagine why libraries still existed. That is, until he'd gone with Annie and Henri to a children's hour at their local library. He'd seen the wonder in his son's eyes as the librarian read to them. He'd seen Henri's excitement at getting to choose books himself to take out, how he clutched them to his chest as though he could read with his heart. Through his infant son, Jean Guy discovered that libraries held treasures. Mm. Isn't that sweet? Oh, my God. I love that. I love how he clutched it to his heart as if he could read through his heart. Yeah. (laughs) Couldn't you just picture that and feel that? Yeah. So Louise Penny, I mean, that book soared to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I don't think it's the strongest entry in the series, and I don't know where it's going to lead us to. Mm. You know, after the last one, I had a sense of things, but we'll not see. Not this one. Yeah. Well, and wasn't the last one not in Three Pines? Yeah, the last one was in Paris. Yeah, so yeah. It was. So when you say it was nice to be back in Three Pines, you mean really in two ways, right? right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. The next Louise Penny novel that's coming out is the one that she is co-writing with Hillary Clinton. Right. Yes. That comes out in the fall, doesn't it? It does, yeah. The title of that novel is State of Terror, and it's expected October 12th, 2021. And of course, it's a political mystery novel. Right. (laughs) And I have a feeling it's going to be really good. I know uh, Bill Clinton has written two with James Patterson, they have gotten good reviews. I haven't read them yet, but um, a couple friends have and said that they're good mysteries. Yeah, yeah, fun. Well, I read Middletown by Sarah Moon. When I finished the other book, I felt like I just needed some lighter fiction. This is a YA novel. It actually takes place in Middletown, Connecticut. Oh my gosh. Which is not far from where we live. Not I just drove through it yesterday. Right, right. And it's about two sisters, Ellie and Anna, And they're kind of left to fend for themselves because their mother is an alcoholic. They've kind of managed with her at home, but she went on a bender and drove, got pulled over, got put in jail, and the judge said, you've got to go to rehab. So she's sent to a 90-day rehab program, and the girls think, oh, they'll just take care of themselves. Ellie's in middle school. Her sister is in high school. And things slowly start to unravel, mostly because the school starts to notice that when they need to talk to mom, there is no mom. Mm -hmm. At one point, the older sister tries to dress up as the aunt and show up at the school, but they don't fall for it. No. A social worker is sent out to come find them, and they make an escape literally out the back door because they don't want to be separated by a social worker, potentially, or put in foster care or some sort of temporary care. So they make it a road trip up to their aunt who lives up in Vermont. (laughs) And their aunt is sober, but goes to AA meetings, takes it all very seriously and lives quite a, um, I want to use the term manicured life. I don't know if that makes sense to people, but you know, very firm in her routine. She's happy to make room for the girls, but she forces them to go to AA meetings. With that, there's something called Alateen. Mm-hmm. I think, is that how you pronounce it? I yeah, think. it's like Al-Anon right. and then Alateen. It's for people who are family members and loved ones of alcoholics and right. addicts. Yeah. So there are scenes where the girls who are kind of ambivalent about doing that go. And one of the things they talk about is that 
children of alcoholic parents become fantastic liars because they're covering up all the time. They're lying to their friends about what's happening at home. They're lying to their teachers. So going to these meetings really helps them confront that because they're with other kids who are like, we've got your number. Mm -hmm. We know what's happening here. You know, it's really well written. I enjoyed it. It was short and sweet. The other arc of the story is that LA is confronting her own gender and how it relates to her friends and her best friends. And she's in love with her girlfriend, Mina. And there's a really sweet story arc around that. Like Chris Tebbett's book, Me, Myself and Him, it's not a coming out story so much as just a story about someone who is, I would say that she's gender fluid. You know, she hasn't figured out her gender so much, but she knows that she's in love with her friend, Mina. So there's some really cute storylines around that. And also just about her friends who are saying, we want to know what's happening in your life. Whereas kids tend to hide these things and traumatic things that are happening, or look at their friends and say, look, you have the perfect family, you'd never understand what's happening in my life. Mm -hmm. But she has a lot of support from her friends, and from the aunt. The author, Sarah Moon, did a really good job, I feel like, of developing interesting characters and also kind of combining a little bit of a road trip and a sister love story and family dynamics and parents who aren't perfect. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. It was a good book, Middletown by Sarah Moon. That sounds good. So it's a YA? Yeah, I would say middle school age. It's funny for me, like, I don't love the idea of going back to middle school, even in my reading. But if authors handle it well, I think it's really a fun place to be again and to revisit what it's like to be in that mindset when you're still just a developing person. Right. Yeah. And starting to have crushes on people and mm -hmm. wondering what the hell's going on. And right. I know that's when friendship groups sometimes really start shifting as well. Mm -hmm. You go to school and your best friend doesn't want to be your best friend anymore. Or people are being mean and they don't know how to stand up for each other, which I think you develop a little bit more in high school. And also I think you're still very much in love with your parents at that age. But then as you start to get into high school, you see that they're human beings too. The story really handles a lot of that well. Hmm. Sounds good. I forgot to mention it on the last episode. I had mentioned it as a currently reading, and that is the graphic nonfiction book called Wake, The Hidden History of Women-Led Slave Revolts by Rebecca Hall, illustrated by Hugo Martinez. And I just wanted to definitely give this book a shout out because I think it's so powerful it's about a woman who's working on her PhD in history, trying to find out who these, the woman that's mentioned as being part of the slave revolt, because it's usually the men that were named. It might just be a first name, it might be their enslaved name, or it could be their given name. But the women were always just women. It's just a really fascinating look at how she went about doing her research in libraries and archives government archives, public archives, and then also being turned away at business archives, at corporate archives, which do not have to be open to the public. So depending on what you're researching, you may or may not get access. In one scene, she tries to access the archives of a big insurance company because enslaved people were insured, and uh, they won't give her access to that. Hmm. It's also the psychological trauma that happens when you're researching this type of history. 
that is so violent and personal. Rebecca Hall's grandparents were actually born into slavery here in the United States. So I thought that was handled very well. And the the drawings, the illustrations are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very intentional. It's This is not a comfort read mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form. At the end, she provides some resources, some sources to check out if you're interested in reading more. I just really appreciated this so much. It's her first graphic novel, and I believe her first work that's non-academic. She is an academic and a lawyer. She does a lot of activist work. Uh, can't recommend this enough. Again, that's Wake, The Hidden History of Woman-Led Slave Revolts by Rebecca Hall. And, you know, it made me think of talking about archives and not getting access to archives. When you're researching history, a couple years ago, there was a new book about Lizzie Borden that came out. Right. Yeah, The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. And in that book, she reveals that there are still locked documents regarding the trial at the law firm that represented Lizzie Borden. You just think like, oh, it's been long enough. Can't you release those records? Because that would be fascinating reading, I'm sure. I mean, whether or not there's anything direct, like a lawyer writing something in the margins of like, oh my God, she did it. Or, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it also just makes you wonder if there's nothing, but you know, nobody wants to read through it to find out and before they release it. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. After reading Motherland and even after reading the YA novel, I just needed something else. I was feeling kind of down and I just went to our local bookstore, Breakwater Books, and bought myself a copy of The Guide by Peter Heller. After you talking about the event you went to, I was like, you know, I want this book. The Gentleman Caller will read it. My son Jacob will read it. Chris wants to read it. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so it's going to be passed around <laughs> enough. I'm not going to feel bad about it. Just go buy a book. Not that you should ever feel bad about buying a book. I don't want to say a lot about it because it is a mystery. I was telling Chris, I went to look for it at the bookstore and was kind of bummed that they didn't have it because I looked in fiction. And then I thought, well, let me just ask the bookseller. And she said, oh, yeah. And she scurried over to the mystery section and grabbed me a copy. I wouldn't say it's a sequel to The River, but it does have one of the main characters from The River. The main character is Jack, and he is hired to be a guide at a fancy fly fishing resort near Crested Butte in Colorado. And he gets there and he's um, paired with someone who he guides, who is a famous country singer. He doesn't really know that when he starts because that's not his bailiwick, but then he kind of figures it out. But part of the whole point of the resort is a lot of privacy. Wealthy people can come and not be outed that they're there on vacation. But there's some surprising things about the novel, and one of them is that it is post-pandemic. So it's about three years out from a novel virus that devastated the country and the world, and it's not over. So one of the things about this resort is that people can kind of purchase safety because they have money and go to a resort that is going to ensure them that they follow protocol to make sure people are tested for the virus, temperatures are taken, things like that. It's one of those things where it's like you were talking about with the Louise Penny, you know, you're reading something that's modern day dealing with something that we're still dealing with that's been very traumatic for people. So it was interesting to read that. It's definitely an adventure and a very quick read. I read it in two days. Peter Heller is a poet and his writing is very poetic. There's a lot of white space between dialogue and between passages. 
The only other thing I'm going to say, because I do not want to ruin anything for Chris, is that it reminded me of the movie Get Out. Mm. Did you see that mm-hmm. movie? I did, yeah. Okay. That's the only other thing I'm going to say. All right. <laughs> That's Jeez. a little a little teaser. Yeah. <laughs> so again, that was The Guide by Peter Heller, and that just came out in the last week, I think, or two. Yeah, really new. When I was here at Book Hooker headquarters the other day, and I saw that on the table, I got super excited. You did? I think you jumped up and down. I did, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then I felt bad that I didn't send it home with you, because I had it as my stack of things to talk about. Yeah. But it'll go home with you today. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go on any Biblio adventures? Well, I did. Um, I mentioned earlier that the semester has started, and I'm normally an online student, but this year, this semester, I'm taking an in-person class. I'm at Simmons University, and they have a West Campus through Mount Holyoke College. So my class is up there. Mount Holyoke is beautiful, gorgeous old buildings, and they have a bookstore there right across the street from campus. It's called the Odyssey Bookshop. And it's been around for quite a long time. I was just telling Emily before we recorded that it was originally started by a man named Romeo Grenier, who was a French-Canadian immigrant who arrived in Holyoke, Massachusetts in 1923 at the age of 13. He did have a limited high school education, and this is all in there about us on their website. So you you could read this if you're interested. He was always interested in reading and he read a lot to self-educate. In 1935, he became a pharmacist. And then in 1957, he bought Glenman's Pharmacy, which was across the street from Mount Holyoke College. So it just became the place to hang out. He eventually shifted things in the store so that when you first walked in, there was a lot of book things. People would come and hang out. When he did start that book section, he started it with 500 penguin titles. So when you first walked into this drugstore, that's what you would see were all these great penguin titles. And then I guess a few years after that, Mount Holyoke College asked him to open a full-fledged bookstore. So that started that. The current bookstore I think it's still run by his daughter and a business partner. So it's Joan Grenier and Neil Novick are the co-owners right now. And it is across the street from Mount Holyoke. It's a different building because they had some fires and whatnot. But right across from Mount Holyoke is this village commons that has a bunch of restaurants and businesses and office spaces and stuff. And the Odyssey Bookshop is there. And they have a ton of author events. So Emily and I... Might be heading up there together. Yeah, my eyebrows just went straight up when you said that. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And they became the official bookstore for Mount Holyoke in the early 2000s, I believe. But when I was up there, I was talking with a guy who was checking students in the day that they were moving in. I had been to the Odyssey bookstore already, and I didn't see a textbook section. I asked him, I said, can you tell me where students go to buy textbooks? Because I love to browse, like, what are the English professors assigning and the history professors, you know? He's like, oh, he's like, sadly, they don't have them on campus anymore. They're all ordered online. Yeah. So... He was a middle-aged man, and I'm a middle-aged woman. And so we had a nice little interaction talking about back in the day, how exciting it was to go and buy all your school supplies and get all your textbooks. And 
walk out with arm cramps. Right. Well, and also, like you said, I used to love, because I wasn't an English major, I used to love to walk through those aisles. I would actually go there first, (laughs) which should have been a clue (laughs) before I went to, you know, go get my accounting books. But no offense to accountants, I do that stuff for a living. But I'd like, what are they reading? What's their, you know, what's their list? And then I would go to the gender studies and women's studies. I loved walking up and down those aisles. So that is sad. Yeah, yeah, that is. But it's understandable, I guess. And it's a tough business. And I always thought about the workload involved Mm -hmm. with that for the poor booksellers, like this huge, you know, setup of all the books, and then the huge purchasing and then the huge resales. But the Odyssey Bookshop is really cool. It's mainly new books, but they do have some used books incorporated in their shelves that they put dots on. And the prices for those are really good. Like there was a relatively new hardcover book that came out within the last year that was six bucks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So really good prices. And they do sell all of the T-shirts and Mm -hmm. spirit gear, I think they call it nowadays. Road trip. Totally. (laughs) How about you? Well, I was reminded my my good book cougar buddy, Chris, that I actually do have Apple TV because she helped me get it. (laughs) So I did watch the Oprah Book Club conversations with Marilyn Robinson. So she did four separate ones. Yeah, with for each of the books in the Gilead series, as I've talked about now, I've read Gilead and home. I've not read Lila and Jack, I don't plan to, but I did watch all of them. They're very short. They're, you know, what she did was, you know, you can see that they were obviously talking the same day. And at the same time, they're wearing the same clothes, but they just cut them into these four different discussions about the books. I just love Marilyn Robinson. I mean, she's so smart and thoughtful and kind. And I imagine she's probably an amazing professor and amazing mother, just really soft and kind. It was really interesting when they were talking about Lila, which is the third book in the series. Lila is the woman who marries John Ames. And John Ames is the minister who Gilead is told from his point of view. She's young when she marries him, which has nothing to do with anything except that you wonder in the first two books I read, like, does she have anything interesting to say? And the third book is all about her. At one point, Oprah says to Marilyn Robinson, Lila seemed really lonely. And Marilyn Robinson's response was, loneliness is a privilege. And you can see Oprah just has like an aha moment, just literally in front of the camera. And she said, I've just never thought of loneliness that way. Marilyn Robinson goes on to talk about how we are sentient beings and to be given time to think and be thoughtful by ourselves is really a privilege. And I had never thought about loneliness in that way either. Yeah, see, I have issues with that, but it's a semantic issue because I think solitude is the correct term Mm. and not loneliness because you can be lonely surrounded by people. Yes. which I think is the worst kind of loneliness. So I'm sorry to butt in, but... No, that's an interesting point. I haven't read the book, so I'm not sure what kind of loneliness they're talking about. Whether Lila was in a situation where she didn't fit in or she had things to say that she wasn't saying. But it reminded me of a time when you and I, we were doing the book cougars already and there was a period in my life when I was very lonely. And you said to me, Maybe you just need to be lonely right now. 
Like maybe there's a reason for it. And now my life is so full that I do wonder about that. And I do actually have some regret. And I do think I did a lot of soul searching during that time. But there's also this, am I not going to be lonely again? Right. You know, maybe I didn't even say that right. You know, is there going to be a time where I don't feel this way? Right. Yeah. Is this forever now? Is this my permanent state of being? Yeah. You know, I definitely still do have sometimes that feeling of loneliness when I'm with people, just like you said. Yeah. And I've been married and been lonely, which is really hard. So I hear what you're saying. But I also think the way that they were talking about it, it just made sense. But I think words are important. And maybe solitude is the better word there. Maybe. Yeah, Yeah. I have a whole solitude, loneliness, isolation. I think they're very similar things. And people sometimes use those words interchangeably. But I think psychologically and spiritually, they're very different. It's true. But I didn't read the books. And I didn't listen to the discussion. So now I'm just like, damn it. I'm going to end up reading those books. (laughs) Uh, They are not for everyone. I mean, after hearing her talk about them, I'm like, oh, yeah, now I really even more get why I didn't enjoy them. Oh, interesting. Her writing is beautiful, but it's just way too contemplative for me. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I have a busy mind. I do plenty of contemplating on my own. And it was like, I am not interested in listening to these people. Mm. Not that they didn't have important things to say or weren't the time and place she puts it in in the Midwest and during the 60s and or late 50s, I should say, into the 60s. She was doing really important things with the books, but I just can't read things written that way. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is so fascinating that these small, short books are so powerful and that they affect people so differently. It's Mm -hmm. fascinating to me. Yeah. And her books come up in conversation. I mean, the other biblio adventure I went on was with William Kent Kruger, who is a very Midwestern writer. And he talks a lot about Marilyn Robinson and how there are few writers that he thinks genuinely write about the Midwest. And she's one of them, as is he. So she's in the lexicon of the writing world, for sure. I mean, she won a Pulitzer, for goodness sakes. And I wouldn't doubt that she wins a Nobel at some point. Mm. But they're just not for me. Yeah, I've read three of her books, though. I've done pretty good. All right. Well, let's (laughs) tell us about William Kent Kruger. Yeah, so I missed the event with Boswell's books. But I caught his event with our buddy Hank Philippi Ryan on A Mighty Blaze, A Mighty Mystery, which they do on Tuesdays. If you're a mystery reader, look for their videos on Tuesdays. Or they have a YouTube channel now, and I'll put a link to this because you will be able to watch it. He's just a sweet, sweet man. They had a lovely conversation. But one of the things I wanted to tell you is that he mentioned Dickens, (laughs) and he said that people consider Dickens' books to be social novels, And that that social novel is not very common anymore. And that the mystery writers have really taken up the mantle of that. And in dealing with cultural and social issues through their mystery writing. And that that's what he was really doing with Lightning Strike. With the idea of taking this murder that happens and looking at it from the cultural vantage point of the Native Americans, Ojibwe who live there and the Minnesotans who live there that are not native. So I thought that was really interesting, because I think someone else was just talking about that, the social issues. Yeah, a lot of people talk about that with crime fiction being 
what writers used to explore contemporary issues. And who was it? It was Juliet Grames. Right. Yes. <laughs> I was just like, we just had that conversation. I know. It was, yeah, yeah. With our last guest, Juliet mm-hmm. Grames. So I thought that was really interesting that he talked about that. He also talked about the fact that he wrote this book, that it was really his agent that wanted him to write a prequel and explain how Cork O'Connor came to be, but that he couldn't really figure out a way in. And then a no Ojibwe friend is the one that told him about this whole, it reminded him, it wasn't that he didn't know about it, but the whole resettlement of Native people and how it affected people culturally, putting them in urban settings. And so once he thought more about that, he realized that that was his end to the story here. So it was a really lovely conversation. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So what about upcoming jaunts? I have one jaunt. And, you know, a lot of authors and bookstores and stuff are doing hybrid models now. So the event will be offered in a virtual platform and also in person. And that's what this one is. I'm not sure if I'm going to go. It's at the Westport Library on September 21st from 7 to 8 p.m. And it's the author Heather Frimmer. Her new novel is called Better to Trust. And this is her second novel. And Heather's a doctor. She's a radiologist. Both of her novels are dealing with people facing medical issues. This is told from multiple points of view. And I don't know a whole lot about it, but I would like to attend the event at the Westport Library. Nice. How about you? Well, I have a fantasy. Hmm. I have a fantasy that you and I go on a joint jaunt together to Mount Holyoke College and, you know, explore the Odyssey Bookstore. But then we go further north to Northampton, Massachusetts, where there are a whole bunch of bookstores, new ones, used ones. Count me in. Yeah. I mean, it's fall almost. Leaves are starting to turn. What a great time to do that kind of biblio adventure together. Yes, I'm game. Let's yeah. do it. Let's pick a date. All right. I'm, <laughs> I'm down with that. <laughs> we have not been on... Well, we've done some joint jaunts in the neighborhood. We went to a, a little free library together. But we, have, we've, we I can't remember the last time we got in a car and went somewhere together. I would oh, I love know. to do that. Well, you know what? It was probably when we went to Old Saybrook and we met there. We didn't even right. drive together because we were still really socially distancing, yeah. even from one another back then. So we met in Old Saybrook at another drugstore. Mm-hmm. And Petri's family right. drugstore in Old Saybrook. That was our last like official yeah. Joint jaunt, other than our neighborhood little free right. library, which yay for that. <laughs> yeah, actually, we have a video of that, John. I'll put a link to that in the show notes if folks haven't watched that. Chris did a really good job editing it, and she put in some fun facts about Ann Petrie. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any upcoming reads? I do. I have two. Okay, so the first one is going to be Alice Henderson's new novel. So she just wrote a book that I talked about a couple episodes ago called A Solitude of Wolverines. Her new one is called A Blizzard of Polar Bears. It's coming out November 9th. I'm going to be reading it really next (laughs) Um, because we're going to be having an interview with her. Yes, I can't wait to talk to her. Yeah. So I'll be reading that. And then I saw our mystery man yesterday, John Valeri. And he gave me an advanced reader copy of An Elderly Lady Must Not Be Crossed. This is by Helene Turston. Some of you might remember that name from her first book, which was called An Elderly Lady is Up to No Good. This is about 
<laughs> Emily giggles, but um, Maud, who's in her 80s, who happens to like kill people. <laughs> so it's a cute, tiny little book. It's by Soho Press. And they had sent him too. So I was a lucky beneficiary of this charming small book. It's the size of my hand, practically. I know. I just love it. It's like purse size. Yeah, absolutely. Cute. Yeah. And John said that he, he read the first one and really liked it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I read it too. It's, yeah, oh, that's it's right. And yeah. it's translated. She lives in Gothenburg, Sweden. Her first book was translated into 25 languages. Wow. Because I think it was such a... I think people really love books about little old ladies being up to no good. Yeah. <laughs> this is a hardcore little old lady. That reminds me of the read-along we did, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tarkachuk. Well, I have a couple books that I'm hoping to read. One of them is called Archer by Shruti Swami. This just came out yesterday. She's the author of the short story collection, A House is a Body. Mm. But this is her first novel, her debut novel. Cool cover. So, yeah. And then a poetry collection that we got from Tin House called My Darling from the Lions by Rachel Long. This is really good. Chris and I both kind of started reading it. Should I read a poem from yes, that little yeah. short one? Oh, that little short one that captured both of us. Yeah. This is a, a quick poem from it. Car Sweetness. Some long journeys back, mum would lay her hand over dad's on the gear stick, their wedding rings glinting like mouths not used to smiling. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That is so powerful. Yeah, her poems are really, really good. You know, the poetryfoundation.org, if you look poems up there and authors, often they are reading some of their poems. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that because it's always interesting to hear them in their own voice recite poetry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It can open a poem up for you in, mm-hmm. in different ways. And I have had the experience where I didn't like a poem the way a poet read it because mm-hmm. I had a certain thing in my head. Yeah. Um, and they could just have a whole different tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That can be shocking that you think it's this sweet little thing and they get up there and they're just like. Rawr! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the classic poet voice that Todd Goldberg on Literary Disco makes a lot of fun of. She definitely didn't do poet voice with hers, but some people do. (laughs) Well, everyone, I think that's it for this episode. Yes, indeed. So another episode coming to a close. And we do want to remind folks about our read-along. The Doctors Blackwell, Janice P. Nymura. We still have a couple spots in the Zoom. September 19th. Yeah. Email us, bookcougars at gmail.com. And also just email us or reach out on social media. Let us know what you're reading. We really do like to know that. Yeah, we do. We'd love to get your recommendations or maybe even a warning. (laughs) (laughs) And we wish you all lots of happy happy reading. reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the Book Cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. Wow.
This episode is edited by Pat Keo Sound Design.